I think it helps develop an 18 year old up here, you know, good work ethic and get your hands dirty and, you know, learn to look after yourself and look after animals and all that sort of stuff. It, it definitely puts a pretty good foundation in, um, in anyone that comes up. If, if I had, you know, I'd be pushing my kids to do it even if I was living in the city. G'day and welcome to episode 75 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and like every week, I'm so excited to bring another awesome conversation from just an outstanding person who's having a real impact in rural Australia. Before we jump into this week's episode, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where I'm recording the podcast this week and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And I'd like to extend those respects to the lands on wherever you may be listening to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Pat Barrett's home is a pretty unique part of Australia, up in northwestern Australia, out of the Kimberleys. We managed to grab him the day before he headed back out to camp. His story goes from a boy who grew up in Central West Um, New South Wales to having a fascination with big wide open spaces and so in the lure of chasing those bigger spaces and more cattle northern Australia was the natural calling. From hard days mustering to the social life of rodeo and camp drafting Pat's even thrown his hand up and done a bit of bronc riding over his time. As someone who has never actually been out on a station in northern Australia I really wanted to understand what a day in the life was like and what it's like to live under the stars and with the same people for weeks on end. Enjoy the chat. This episode's sponsor is LAWD. LAWD are the specialists in agribusiness valuations and transactions. They've been supporting the Humans of Agriculture podcast since March of this year. If you'd like to find out more or look at all their listings, you can head to lawd.com.au. Mate, I'd love to just start off. Can you paint a picture for us? Um, whereabouts in the world are you and, and what's been happening up north? Uh, I'm in Broome at the moment. Um, we've got all the camps around at work at, the, at, at different jobs. So we've got two camps in the Kimberley and two in the Pilbara, uh, three in the Pilbara. Um, I'm about to head off to start to join one of those crews tomorrow morning. Um, yeah, so it's obviously the year's getting on a little bit at the moment. Um, but we've probably got a pretty solid sort of six weeks to wrap up the rest of the year, probably, yeah, about a month of cattle work. And then by early December, we'll be starting to get everything back up to Broome and yeah, pack it all away and go home. Can you tell me, you said you're heading out to camp tomorrow from Broome. How far is yep. it to actually get out there? Uh, I've got to go down south of Port Headland, so probably about um, a thousand k's, 900, something like that. <laughs> so it's, it's no morning commute. Yeah, it's not too bad. It's all bitumen, so don't complain. Yeah, well, bloody hell. I wanted to jump back, and you grew up in in Central West New South Wales. Um, tell me a little yep. bit more about yeah the family family farm and where those that interest in agriculture started. Um, 
yeah, so both my parents' sides of the families came off the land. Um, I grew up in Dubbo. My father was a stock and station agent for elders. He managed elders in Brewan and Narbra and Dubbo. Um, so I sort of had a pretty close involvement with, with sheep and cattle and, that, and whatnot. Um, growing up, I always wanted to continue doing that, I suppose. I don't have a lot of interest in sheep and that sort of stuff, but um, definitely cattle. I sort of always had a sort of desire to work with cattle and work in Northern Australia um, from a from a really young age. So, yeah, I suppose it's where we are today. Was there a certain someone or some uncles or cousins or something that lured you into heading up north with some of the, the stories of their time up there, or where did you kind of get your first taste? Um, yeah, not really. I always, um, don't know. I've always, I always wanted to, always wanted to head up, head up to the to northern Australia and work in the Kimberleys and the Gulf and all that sort of stuff. Ever, yeah, ever since I can remember, really. Um, definitely had a couple of people I've probably looked up to or um, that were in similar roles. Um, but even, you know, even Western New South Wales, things like the massive scale when you're a kid. So um, I just always wanted to go, you know, to bigger places and bigger mobs of cattle and, you know, the throwaways that needed to be to, to get to it, really. So you you finished up at school in Sydney. Joey's, wasn't it? Or was it? Yeah. Was it? Joey's, yeah. Was there a, a whole mob of you that headed up there or, or what was it like? Um. No, there's only two of us actually. Um, yeah, really. Yeah, two of us. Ah, uh, three of us, so three. Um, and yeah, all, by memory, all heading to the same property, or did you guys kind of come from your different uh, two, areas? And no, two of us went to the same property, and then the other guy went um, same company, different location. Um, yeah, but the following year, there's a lot of happy bikes from. Joey's were up, up, up um, north for so long year that I'd known from, you know, the year below me at school. So there's always a pretty high percentage of sort of blokes from um, boarding schools. I suppose most of boarding schools are full of blokes, of kids off the land and that that, that want to go up north anyway. So, yeah, there's usually pretty high work load of those guys. But, yeah, to start off with, there were three of us anyway. Um, and one of those guys is still up here in the industry now, yeah. Yeah, wow, that's pretty cool. Was it, when you're heading up there and, and for the very first time, was that first year as you expected or did you walk did you walk in thinking one thing and then all of a sudden it was something completely different? Um, no, it was pretty good. Uh, I went to Brunette out of school, um, did two years at Brunette Downs on a Barclay. So it was a pretty big, um, it was a pretty big task force sort of thing there. We spent a lot of time out at camp, sort of seven, eight man camp, um, pretty standard sort of size, but no, it was great. I really loved it. The, um, definitely working with some few better areas in the Barclays since then, but, um, <laughs> I loved my time there. Yeah. I wouldn't trade it again. I had really good people and there was really good management there at the time and, um, it was everything I expected anyway. You worked hard and 
but had a really good close sort of um, work environment with the people you work with, and yeah, it was good. Enjoyed it. When it um, and when it came to you being able to build a career and, and that decision to stay up there and kind of go beyond just being a ringer and starting to go into head stockman and whatever else followed from there. Was that pretty straightforward? Is it one of those things that you need to jump around between properties and between companies and go from there? Um, definitely changing. I think getting as much sort of exposure to it, to different areas and companies and everything's good. Um, you definitely want to be working on different properties. You do see a couple of, couple of times where we both it might do a couple of years on one property and then we've done on the camp there. It's probably not the best way to start out, but just having exposure to different work environments, you know, work on, on breeder properties and then on, um, maybe backgrounding depots, um, stuff like that, different companies, private contracting, um, sort of a bit of exposure to all those things definitely helps out. Um, just as much experience to different aspects of the industry, really. Yeah, we. Although so, I was, yeah, I was just thinking then, as you started to mention, like the export depots. Were you up north and involved in the industry when that ban rolled through in two thousand and eleven? Yeah, yeah, I was working on a breeder property um, then, running the camp um, on a breeder place on the Queensland Territory border, so it didn't, probably didn't take much, like, didn't really affect us too much. You heard a lot about it. Um, the following year, I went up to um, the Territory and I was around the camp on a place that was just a backgrounding depot, the boat cattle, so probably got a little bit more involvement with it then. Um, yeah, so I was in the industry anyway, but I wasn't directly sort of, probably involved in different markets and all that sort of stuff to those cattle so I wasn't directly involved and didn't directly affect our sort of day-to-day stuff but you definitely knew people that it did but yeah, it didn't really affect me too much anyway. And so you've gone from one side of Australia to the other now from working in Queensland right across to the, the northwest. Yeah, yeah. What were some of the jobs and and that transition from so you so you're a contractor now and running your own contracting business. So, what? Yeah, mm-hmm. for for someone who's always loved the lure of up north, but kind of never had any idea of what a day mm-hmm. is like up there. What is the the difference kind of between a ringer and a contractor? Um, there's not a hell of a lot of difference. The contracting, we're sort of a hundred percent cattle work. Um, so we don't do a lot of. We probably miss out on that, you know, repairs and maintenance fencing um, that you do typically do on station. It's a bit of the sort of stuff that goes with being on a station where our season usually starts a little bit later um, when the country sort of dried out and everyone's ready to start. So we're, we're just predominantly just cattle work mustering and processing cattle. Um, Obviously, you do a lot of cattle work contracting through the year. Um, whereas on a station, you might do in a nine month season, you might do two rounds, and you know, there might be five months of pretty solid cattle work, and then you've got a couple of months of you know, doing a bit of fencing and maintenance and repairs and a bit of sort of development on the place. So, um, that's probably the main difference contracting you out at camp the whole time, so you're not, um, you, we live, you live in a mobile camp, 
um, so you're not at a station and you do, you know, we might, most of the time our camps will have sort of five different job locations for the year, so you are on the road a little bit more. You might, you might, sort of most of our jobs average about six weeks, some are a bit shorter, some are four months, so you are travelling around a little bit more as well. Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. Yeah, wow. So you get to sleep under the stars every night and see a bit of the country. Can you can you tell me a bit more about the stock camps? Like, are you guys sleeping out under the stars? Are you carting around caravans? What is it like? Um, yeah, pretty well. Um, the camps, they're all pretty, they're well, they're, they're, you know, purpose-built camps that we live in. Um, but, you know, there's not room for everyone. Most of the folks, most of the guys will have a ute or something that they sleep on the back of and have a bit of their equipment, clothes and whatnot in. Um, yeah, so it's a little bit more outdoors, obviously. You eat outdoors. Um, you cut generators and whatnot around for power and, Showers and everything are all set up in the camps themselves. So, um, you surprise, yeah, you do get used to it though. You sort of doesn't, you don't really notice that you eat, eat dinner under a tree every night. It sort of just becomes what you do. Um, the, um, but no, it's good. The, um, some of the guys that have been up here a bit longer, they might have, you know, gooseneck cars or vans and whatnot that they live out of. But most of the time, those guys are in swags and, it's good sort of clean conditions. Um, definitely not, you know, missing a shower every night or anything like that. Um, we've got cooks and everyone who do cooking and cleaning and everything like that. So, yeah, it's, it doesn't change, you know, whether you're on a station or contract and you're still going outside and working every day. So just instead of going back to a room, you, you're going back to your swag most of the time. It'd be pretty, pretty incredible uh, being under the like the northern skies every night. Do you just absolutely love it when you're out there? Yeah, it's good. I enjoy being out there. Um, yeah, I don't sleep in the side myself anymore, but um, yeah, when I used to, yeah, it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely um, pretty special, I suppose. Being outside, people that come up to do this line of work obviously enjoy being outdoors and enjoy the bush and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I suppose you're, you're outdoors and living a lifestyle that you want to be living, so it's good, yeah. And in terms of are you guys motorbikes or horses and, and carting them around? A uh, bit of both. bit of both. Not a lot of horses anymore. Um, we were, when we first started the first few years, we were, we were mainly horses. Um, most of our work's in Western Australia now. And there's not a hell of a lot of horse work. We do a, a couple of clients, we do a little bit, but we've sort of gone from, you know, operating with a 40 head horse plant 
back to probably have about five now. Um, so they're definitely not our main focus or our main, you know, item used for mustering. Um, most of the time it's motorbikes, two wheels, four wheels, and, and catches really. Um, so that's a lot more mechanical. Um, we still do a lot of, um, most of our mustering is coaching mustering with, with the sort of feral cattle that we handle, but yeah, we don't, we don't use horses. We use motorbikes and buggies and break them in and walk them with that. And, and so on that, you, you just started to mention kind of the bull catching and, uh, that pretty exciting and adrenaline rush side of the, um, of the industry. Do you, do you guys find yourself in some pretty hairy situations kind of out in the middle of kind of nowhere? Um, oh, I suppose you don't have any days. It's usually, <laughs> if you're not set up properly, um, you, you see the young yeah, guys coming out time, full of energy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Most of the videos you see on Facebook and that are usually because someone's doing something wrong, but, um, <laughs> the, um, yeah, no, not a lot. I suppose every now and then you're working with you're working with um, you're working with some dangerous animals from time to time. But you know everything about it, how you set, get your equipment set up, and how you do your work, and the folks you're employing, and helicopters and trucks, everything. Your job is to um, is to keep the cattle settled and all that sort of stuff. So if you do that, and your equipment, you know. Set up to make it a good, safe, and you know, quiet work environment, and good for the cattle and everything. It, it obviously limits the danger in it. So, um, I'd like to think now we we probably don't see ourselves in that many hairy conditions really because we're we're professional the way we conduct it all. Um, but yeah, you could do if you get yourself in the wrong spot. You definitely could do this idea about that. Yeah, yeah, well, you're dealing with some pretty big animals and. Um yeah, some of that, that bull catching stuff, it, like it's fascinating to watch just how people do it. Do they do they go from being kind of scrub wild animals and then being able to be handled and put through the yards? Does it does it take them long or are they kind of do they come around pretty quick? No, they come around pretty quick, surprisingly. Um they're sort of similar to, you know, educating a mob of wieners. Um, unbroken in we- unbroken wieners, um, cattle that are cattle that are fencing cattle that haven't been handled are usually the best to handle because they haven't had you know they haven't any learned any other traits from anyone. Um, but no, you, you, it's surprising. Like we do a couple of hours. We we usually have helicopters will bring out a coaching mob to us and then they'll hand them over to us on the ground. Um, we do a bit of work together with the helicopters then until they've, they're used to us blocking them up and um, and then they'll hand them over to us. And by the time, you know, a couple of hours, you know, we're walking around blocking them up, doing what we need to do them. Um, within a few hours, yeah, a lot of the time we'll walk for a couple of days. So we'll, a lot of the country we must is pretty um, hard to access with trucks and whatnot. So that sort of results in us walking. So we might, you know, Sometimes we might walk a model cattle for five or six days. Um, as we're going, we're obviously coaching mustering, so we're mustering. It, it sort of adds benefit where we're mustering country that we're walking through as we go, and we're walking them back to country that's accessible for trucks and all that, whatever else we need to do with them. Um, so that's the sort of method we take with it. 
Um, it's not how everyone does it. Um, it's definitely a bit more, takes a few more staff and whatnot the way we do it, but it's really good on the cattle. Um, yeah, good results in regards to the cattle and their, and their welfare and stress levels are, you know, minimal to none really. And uh, they get really quiet by the end of it. It's pretty good sort of working in mobile cattle for a few days, walking and whatnot, you sort of get to know age, you get to know them a little bit and their personalities and yeah, they settle down good. Sounds pretty incredible. How, how do you guys keep them together of a night time? Do you end up stringing up yards or something like that or what happens? Yeah, we, we just do night yards, so portable portable panels. Um, we, don't, we don't do any night watching and whatnot like they did once upon a time. Um, yeah, so we'll, we usually just put them into a night yard, so we'll water them before they go into the yard. Um, you know, a lot of the time we're working around, you know, rivers or springs and stuff, but most of the time we don't have much of an issue finding a bit of water, um, and then we'll put them into a night yard and then obviously let them out the next day and make a mile and shift the yard ahead and set it up again, yeah. Yeah, wow. Bloody hell. As I'm talking to you, I'm just like, geez, I want to come up there. <laughs> in terms of, um, you've also got, so you've got your own your own business with a bunch of staff, which we'll touch on in a second, but um, you have your own cattle business as well, don't you? Is that right? Uh, yeah, quite a few, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so are they kind of scattered here, there and everywhere? Or like, do you guys have a base um, that you set up at? Uh, no, we've just got some cattle in the Northern Territory on adjustment, um, and some in the, in New South Wales. Yeah, that New South Wales stuff's a bit short term, but yeah, just got a few breeders and whatnot, really. Yeah, that's the gist of all of that. Um, yeah, just sort of a bit of a breeding herd, really, yeah. Yeah, right. Cheers. I was going to say, you don't mind a few miles between places. <laughs> yeah, that's no, good, good. Um, a question around uh, the the social life and and or actually jump back. Can you can you run us through? So you've got yeah, how many how many people you've got across your six or so different camps that you're running? And yeah, what well, what are the kind of the ages and backgrounds of those guys and girls? Um, usually we have sort of thirty five to forty staff. Um, most of the season, about 35. We, we run four camps, um, and have done for sort of always hovered around four camps. Sometimes it'll be three, sometimes five, but yeah, sort of around the four camps for eight years now. Um, the staff probably average about 20, probably about 21 years old. Um, all the staff working for us are, you know, a couple realistically. They've all done a few years in the industry. A fair few of them have done a few years working for us. Um, sort of generally have a pretty good staff retention. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, they're pretty experienced teams we have and sort of aim, that's sort of the main focus in the company really is to, have good experienced staff that, um, you know, want to be in the industry and uh, you look after them and try and get them to hang around for as long as you can, really. Yeah. And do most of them, are they pretty keen on staying in that 
northern cattle industry? Like, do they go then on to step into some of the properties either you're working at or, or other stations across the north? Uh, a bit of both. A lot of the, um, I suppose when you come into the industry, to start off working in camps, your, your next your next move is a sort of is a headstockman role. I've obviously got a, a couple of headstockmen working for me. Um, all the all the blokes running camps for me have worked for me for a couple of years, like a minimum of sort of three years, um, up to sort of seven and eight. The um, so we definitely have some guys that want a headstockman role and they're worthy of it, but um, we don't have a opening for them for instance so they'll go and you know we usually try and put them in touch with clients that are, that we think would be well suited for them and where their career is at and whatnot. Um, yeah they definitely probably about 40% want to stay in the industry I suppose roughly um, whether that's a pilot you know they want to become a pilot one day or manage a station or run a contract camp um, drive trucks that sort of thing it's, it's probably about 40%, maybe a little bit less, yeah, 30 to 40%. This podcast has been produced in collaboration with Antola Trading. Owned and designed in Outback Australia, Antola have always been known for making some of the best quality work shirts money can buy. But their latest collection is extra special. As you're probably well aware now, Antola's founder, Alicia McClymouth, has chosen 23 men and women who she sees are doing incredible things across regional and rural Australia as the Antola Ambassadors. And we're here to tell their story through the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Made from 100% cotton, the shirts are perfect for those long hours in the sun and a hard day's work. And what's more, with every purchase of their new season's kids' shirt, Antola will donate $2 to the Ronald McDonald House charity in Brisbane to help those families who have to travel far in order to help sick kids. You can find out more at www.entolatrading.com. I wanted to ask you, um, when, when you're, like, so you're heading down to camp um, in the morning, when you turn up, do you come in as the boss or do you end up just doing, filling in where there's a gap and, and running around doing the odd jobs that, that are needed? Um, I'll probably a bit of both, I suppose. Yeah. Try not to get yelled at. But, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The um, I, I I definitely run one of the camps myself. Um, but I don't usually have too much hierarchy. The other camps, are just, there's a head stop and he's in charge of the camp. Um, I try not to make I try not to make too many layers of hierarchy anyway. Um, but in my camp, I do have a sort of a leading hand or a head stockman, so to speak. Um, I'm not always, I do a fair bit of travelling around, so I'm probably only in my camp 70% of the time or something like that. So the bloke who's in that leading hand for the head stockman role under me does have to take the reins quite a bit. Um, So, yeah, no, I usually, um, depending on how, you know, how frequent I'm coming and going out of camp at the time, um, I, I sort of deal with that one main bloke and, um, see where they're at and make a bit of a plan and I usually try and let them take care of the staff um, but if they do I have to sort of step in and take over for a bit it's usually done in a you know constructive sort of way we just sort of, everyone sort of works together um, to sort of push a very um, 
sort of proactive sort of work environment together, I suppose, just like putting it like it's not everyone's sort of got to jump in and work together and it's a happy work environment. Obviously, there's different skill levels and everything in all the different camps, but if, if we find people that can't really work together in that environment, you know, most of the time they're better off going and working somewhere else and seeing if it works out there. Um, working, contracting together, you obviously spend a lot of time together and, um, you socialise together and work together and live together and eat together and do everything in each other's pockets. So, um, you really need to concentrate on having a, having a good, healthy work environment and everyone being prepared to just go to work and work with one another every day. So, that's pretty well where that's all at. And in my camp itself, um, it's treated exactly the same, really. It, it doesn't change no matter sort of what location you're working in, really, for us anyway. Well, I was going to ask you on that. So, around, what you've got a bucket load of people working for you and you guys are remote for kind of six weeks at a time living together. Has it, yeah, has it changed a lot of the way because you're nearly bloody family housemates, but you're also working together. Is that a hard dynamic to kind of manage? Uh, most of the time it's not, I suppose. Um, it's a bit of the culture you create within your work environment, really. Um, a 20-year-old bloke wanting to come and work up north is usually pretty fit and energetic and keen to get into the work they're in. So most of the time, if you can't make someone like that fit into a crew and have a crew working together pretty well, there's you know, probably something wrong with how you've got your work, you know, workplace coming together really. So it's, I, don't, I, I find it pretty easy really. Um, they're all like-minded, young, energetic blokes and as long as you, you manage the, your leadership managed right, it's usually fine. Um, they get a good exposure. Um, like with what they're doing, they get a good exposure to all different aspects of the industry, which like ticks them along pretty well, I suppose. Um, but it's the same on stations, it's the exact same principle. You know, it's just got to be a good culture and um, people are, you know, respected and blah, blah, blah. It all sort of works out. Yeah, for sure. And I think. Interestingly, like having that number of people working for you, it'd be really cool kind of as the years go by that you you look at the people who have come and worked for you and then where they end up going to and those that stay in industry, but I guess those that don't as well. It's um, You'd start to have, if you were to map it out, you'd have people kind of all over the place that are doing all kinds of things and, yeah, that either started off with you or kind of came through a camp at one stage. It'd be pretty cool to look at it in that way. Yeah, yeah, there is. Um, folks that have stayed in the industry and gone, you know, gone down other paths, um, or just all in completely, in completely different lifestyle. But no, it is good. Um, it's good to sort of see what everyone's doing and catch up with everyone. See where, yeah, it's interesting to see, um, see where life takes people, I suppose. And, um, yeah, the, the road they go down. Yeah, it's good. And on that, social piece and, and bringing people together and catching up. Do you guys get many chances or, or do you spend most of your time kind of out? Like what does the a social life look like up there when you're, yeah, contracting? 
Uh, we do we do get out a bit. The sort of main events, I suppose, are sporting events, really, like rodeo and camp drafting. Um, so, yeah, we, tr- we try to get to a few of those each year, the, um, which is good. Um, we don't always get all our teams into one location very often, um, but obviously going to those community events, you socialise with other, other crews, other stations, other contract teams, which is good. Um, yeah, so there's sort of five, four or five um, events, like campus radio events in the Kimberley from the east to west Kimberley throughout the year. So, yeah, we definitely try and get to as many of those as we can. And, yeah, that's that's most of the time that's the social events for our guys. Um, aside from that, you know, it's just your normal days off and they might go into town and relax for a bit and have a, have a look around while they're in there. We, um, but, yeah, from a social point of view, it's mainly for the campus and radios and whatnot. Is it, yeah, the... Are the camp drafts and radios, are they normally just over a weekend, a couple of days, or do they go a bit longer than that? Or Yeah, when you yeah they're usually sort of Thursday through to most of the radios over here are Sunday day radios. So, yeah, you're usually um, not not rolling out of there until Monday. Um, <laughs> you might arrive there Thursday. So, yeah, everyone's sort of usually keen to get back to work by then. Yeah, <laughs> had enough of socialising and seeing people. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever ever been brave enough to jump on a bull or a bronc or anything like that? Uh, Yeah, I did a bit of bronc riding. Um, Haven't haven't been done much for the last four or five years, but um, yeah, I used to do a bit of bronc riding and do a bit of picking up now for the um, for the bronc. So yeah, I I definitely like trying to stay involved with radio. Got a lot of time for the sport, so yeah, we. We're definitely trying to help out those communities and whatnot wherever we can, yeah. So you guys have got the wet season coming up. So do you normally stick around um, for the wet season or but your family's back in New South Wales, so do you come back home? Yeah, I usually do go home for a bit. Um, sort of got family in New South Wales and Queensland, so um, we've got a base just out of Broome that we do a lot, we do a lot of maintenance over the wet um, on trucks and all like the equipment, um, sort of catches and all that sort of stuff. The wet season's pretty big, sort of focal point for all that the side of it. Um, so we've usually always got you know a couple of blokes employed over the wet season doing that, and then as we move into the early part of the season, we ramp it up a bit. Um, I, I usually hang around for the early part of that just to. See, it's all going to plan and whatnot, and, and oh, making a plan really with the blokes that are going to be doing it all. Um, and then I usually shoot home, and um, the wet season is usually pretty in, intensive with employing, you know, new staff and just going over everything for the season. Um, it's sort of a bit of an office period, I suppose, um, preparing jobs and contracts and whatnot for the next year. Um, yeah, so and I usually do 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 that at home, so I usually go home for a couple of months and. Um, been a couple, probably about ten months over here, and yeah, eight weeks in sort of Queensland so far. Do you ever reckon you'll come back down this way full time, or you see the future for you guys up in up in the north? Uh, not at the moment. No, I'd probably yeah, I enjoy 
been able to transit back and forth, but I don't have any desire to go back um, to New South Wales full time. The, um, yeah, pretty happy up here at the moment doing what we're doing, really. Um, everything should be going to plan, so yeah, don't really need to change anything at the moment. It's going well. Uh, fair enough. I've got two questions that I want to ask you. One on that. So, what is your favourite thing about working in Northern Australia? Uh, probably animals. I obviously like animals. I like cattle and horses and whatnot. Um, and it's a really good work environment with the staff. I like, you know, good, energetic young people that want to be working, you know, like-minded people working together. And, yeah, that's probably the, the main part of it, yeah, working with people that want to work together and achieve the same goals. And it's good working with people who've got a bit of energy and, um, yeah, enjoy yeah, for it. sure. Keeps it fun and exciting too when, <laughs> when that energy's coming in and, a few stories of all I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. And the last question I've got for you, which I ask everyone, if, if you got the chance to head back down to Sydney to Joey's and you're chatting to Year 10 students, what would be some of your advice to them about a career in agriculture? Uh, I suppose just, yeah, probably promote the industry a little bit, I suppose, really. Um, what it is, it's a good... It's a good industry to work in. It's, um, I suppose what we just touched on, really. If, if, that, if, if animals and ag are something that interests you, it's obviously a pretty good place to head into. And there is it's probably a little bit of a... Um, probably a little, everyone's a little bit uneducated that there is actually pretty good careers in the industry up in Northern Australia. Um, it's probably... You do see a lot of people sort of come and do a few years and they rush home to go and do a degree that they never sort of follow through with anyway. Um, and you've got to see a few of those people and they don't actually realise that there is good careers they could hang around and, and go and move into up here. So, yeah, probably that really. Um, if it is something you want to look into, there's, there's plenty of avenues to go down and long-term careers and life, you know, lifestyles to move into and, um, yeah, and, and move into it. Yeah, it should be, I should really cover it more or less. Um, just come up and enjoy it for sure. Now, well, I think hopefully, with the challenges of um, kids not being able to get overseas for gap years and whatnot, maybe agriculture and particularly, yeah, kind of the, the year up doing it as a ringer starts to appeal to a few others and people go and see a little bit and, and check out other parts of Australia which they may not have otherwise. Yeah, definitely. It's um, Industry as a whole probably needs to look at promoting that. Everyone sort of, you know, sits around complaining that there's a lack of, um, a lack of skilled staff, which there is, but um, it's only for one reason because people don't know about it really, I suppose. So uh, industry as a whole probably needs to all come together and promote the industry for what it actually is and what we want it to be viewed as. And um, I definitely think that'll help the retention and, and everything once it's all sorted out as well. Yeah, for sure. Maybe one of the best kept secrets in Aussie Ag. So we'll, we'll see. Yeah, it's in my opinion. Yeah, it's good. It's good. I think it'd be anyone, um, any young bloke, you know, female or male, 
Um, even the boats are just the people that come up for one year and they and they've got intentions to go home for other reasons. But I think it helps develop an eighteen year old up here, you know, good work ethic and get your hands dirty and, you know, learn to look after yourself and look after animals and all that sort of stuff. It, it definitely puts a pretty good foundation in um in anyone that comes up. If if I had you know, I'd be pushing my kids to do it even if I was living in the city somewhere else with a good stepping stone and set them up well for their working career later in life. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Hope you enjoyed learning more about Pat's story, his team, and just the importance that they place on animal welfare. If you want to find out more about Pat's story, you can head over to our website, humansofagriculture.com, and look at all our stories from all our different podcast guests and people we're chatting to outside as well. Look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane, and we'll chat to you next week.